Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. This is Lainey. I'm very excited to offer another editor's unedited episode today. We welcome back a veteran of the podcast, Jessica Williams, executive editor at William Morrow. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Lainey. Thrilled to be here. Um, And today we're going to be joined by Kirsten Chen, the author of Counterfeit. Kirsten, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Kirsten. Um, I'm the author of Counterfeit that comes out June 7th. I'm also the author of two other novels, uh, Bury What We Cannot Take and Soy Sauce for Beginners. So I thought we'd begin by having you tell listeners a little bit about your novel, Counterfeit, and maybe the two women at the center of it. Yeah, sure. Um, So Counterfeit is the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag scheme into a global enterprise. Um, And the main character is your typical model minority. Um, She's a straight-laced, rule-abiding Chinese-American lawyer named Ava Wong, who has the seemingly perfect life. Um, She has a successful surgeon husband. She has an adorable son. She has a beautiful home. But obviously, when you look beneath the surface, things are a little more complicated than they seem. And it's when her life is starting to unravel that her old college roommate, Winnie Fang, suddenly reappears. And Winnie is in temperament, maybe the opposite of Ava. She's kind of bold and brash and confident. And um, that was one of the most interesting things for me to explore were these two Asian American women who look very similar on the surface, but actually have very different senses of self based on their upbringings. Um, So Ava grew up in a a predominantly white upper middle class town in Massachusetts. Um, And so she's always been a minority. She's always had to adapt to the majority culture. While Winnie is originally from mainland China, which is obviously the largest country in the world, an economic powerhouse. And there's all this um, privilege and confidence that comes with that. And so it was really interesting to kind of explore those different, those two differences. So this is your third novel, as you mentioned, and you're not exactly new to the writing process, but what inspired you to write a book set in the world of counterfeit luxury handbags? (laughs) Yeah, Um, you know, I think that most writers would say that each of their books is a reaction to the book that came before. And so for me, um, my first novel, Soy Sauce for Beginners, was set in contemporary Singapore. It has a protagonist who on the surface looks a lot like me. She's um, young, Singaporean, moved to San Francisco, had to move back. Um, in the novel, she moves back to run the family business, which is an artisanal soy sauce factory. And when I went on book tour, 
the number one question people ask me was, are you your protagonist? And does your family own a soy sauce factory? And I was, uh, you know, I kind of grew a little weary of answering that question. And so when I wrote my second novel, I decided I was kind of subconsciously, I decided I was going to set it in a historical time period when I wasn't born in a country that are, where I wasn't from um, to kind of shut down that line of questioning. And so that became my second novel, Bury What We Cannot Take, which is this historical, um, it's historical fiction and set in 1950s Southern China. And in writing that book, the biggest challenge was really the research and overcoming the doubts that I would be able to gain the expertise to capture this really complicated period of Chinese history. And so, you know, when I was in the kind of in the thick of that research, I turned to my spouse and said, the third book that I write is going to require zero research and is therefore going to have to be about handbags, which is the only thing I'm an expert, already an expert in. And it was a complete joke. But, you know, several months later, I read this article in the Post about a real life con artist who had created this really foolproof counterfeit handbag scheme. And that's when I thought, okay, this, this could be the idea for a novel. That's such a funny story too, because you actually ended up doing a ton of research <laughs> for counterfeit. Yeah. And I'd love, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about that process, you know, what it looked like, how you delved into this world and about the travel involved. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I consider myself an armchair expert of designer handbags, but obviously I knew nothing about counterfeit designer handbags. It's a whole different, um, I mean, it's just a very different industry. Um, and so I was really lucky that I got a research grant early on in the writing process, which allowed me to travel to Guangzhou and Hong Kong in Southern China. And um, the kind of the, the, the most important things I did there was I, I managed to visit um, the famous fake handbag markets, which are where um, all manner of counterfeit handbags are sold from, you know, things that cost a few dollars to things that cost upward of a thousand dollars. And it was really amazing to be able to touch and feel those handbags and to talk to the people who worked in that industry. Um, so that was one really great thing I did. I also managed to tour a luxury handbag factory in China. And that was fascinating because this was a factory that manufactured handbags for a lot of the big international brands. And so I think the, um, the kind of intricate diplomacy and politics that, that these these factories navigate in having to manufacture these handbags was really interested to see, interesting to see. Um, and then the third thing I did was that I um, talked to a um, to an IP lawyer who specialized in copyright infringement in China, and it was fascinating to hear about this juxt the way that um, the luxury industry lives side by side with the counterfeit industry in China because China is the largest market for luxury goods. Every international brand wants to have a foothold in China. China. And at the same time, it's in China that the best quality counterfeits are being made. And so to watch those two things live side by side was really fascinating. So funny, too, because I feel and you touch on this in the novel, this idea that, you know, say you buy, you know, what you would think would be like an Italian designer or a Parisian designer, and it will say like made in Italy or made in France. But in the novel, you sort of delve into this idea that maybe that stamp is just put on there at the end. <laughs> well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes they make the handle in Italy and then stamp the, you know, stamp yes. on the underside. In, it's yeah. all made in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, I mean, it's true that international brands are incredibly secretive about this. Um, 
for myriad reasons, but it's just one of the kind of interesting facts that I uncovered on this research trip. So let's talk about your path to publication for this novel and a little bit about the editorial process. I think, you know, some sometimes that process that sort of behind the scenes, you know, what happens between an author and their agent and then on the submission and, you know, auctions and various things that happen in the editorial process before the book gets sort of launched into the world or, you know, is being sent out to librarians and booksellers, it can be a little opaque. So I'd love to hear from you, like, the timeline, like when you started, when you sent it to your agent, when I got it. Um, and it was such a sort of whirlwind too for this novel. Yeah, well, it's hard to think about, you know, when we, uh, Jessica, when you made an offer on the novel and then when we went through the um, film auction, it was all happening, I think two weeks before the presidential election. Yeah, it was because I think yeah. we talked during the January 6th interaction. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I feel like I remember talking to you. It was just this whole stretch <laughs> from November to January that was incredibly stressful with this book stuff and the film stuff happening. So, yeah, it was a world. I mean, it's interesting to think about the path to publication um, just because I think from the outside, um, when I talk about my path to publication, it looks extremely direct. You know, like I, I got my agent right out of my MFA and then my MFA thesis became my first novel. And then four years later, I published my second and four years after that, I published my third. And it looks extremely linear, but every writer will say that nothing is nothing is linear, nothing is smooth. There's just tons of rejection inherent in the publication process. Um, and so to give you a quick example with my first novel, um, it actually took a really, really long time to sell. It was eight months from the from the day we first submitted it to the day we finally found a home. And within that, you know, the first time we sent it out, nobody bought it, but two editors asked for a revision. So we pulled it back, revised it, sent it back to those two editors. They both rejected it. And then we had to go out on the third round. And um, I think that process really, it was it was the worst eight months of my life, but I think that it taught me that if I wanted to make this my life's work, I would have to learn to separate the writing process from the publishing process, because otherwise um, I would just never survive. Um, and that's, that's kind of a lesson that I've taken with me ever since. So how did you feel when your agent, Michelle, well, first, when she first read the book, and then when she told you, okay, I think it's ready, I'm going to take it out for submission. And this is your first time being published by, you know, what we call a traditional publisher, right? Yeah. Um, It's interesting with this book, you know, I may, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to not kind of, um, in hindsight, revise, you revise the process, but I do feel like she saw something in this book that she maybe hadn't seen in my first two books. Um, I think the, um, the premise and the concept were so sort of instantly understandable and alluring that, um, you know, from the instant I pitched the idea to her when the book was just living in my mind, she was excited in a way that I hadn't really seen before. And so I yeah, think- Yeah, well, it's got, it's a great hook. I mean, I think <laughs> yes. that's why Hollywood came calling so yeah. quickly when your yeah. novel was on submission. And so I think that's a very particular thing that's related to this book. But I think because of that, I had a lot of confidence in this book in a way that I maybe didn't with my first two books. And maybe also because I have more experience now. And so, you know, each time that we would go back and rework it, I I always knew I could make it work, if that makes sense. Like I just had a confidence that I would, that this idea was so good that I could not, I could not let it fail maybe. (laughs) Because of that, um, 
it never, uh, uh, it always felt like we were moving forward with this project, no matter what the feedback was. What were you thinking would happen though? I know that even if a writer thinks that, you know, they feel good about their book, the draft that's been taken out on submission, there is probably that anxiety around hearing nothing or crickets um, after it gets submitted. And yeah. so do you remember like that timeline when it was first sent out versus when you started having your calls? It was a week. I mean, it was so fast. And like I said, I had lived through this period of uncertainty for eight months. Like I knew kind of what the worst could be and I had survived. I also had in that time become a very serious practitioner of meditation from 2014 until the time my third book was submitted. But yeah, so with this third book, the, I think we, I think Michelle heard back in a matter of days and was like, sit tight. We're going to schedule calls. And so there was almost no time to panic. And I feel so fortunate because I know that this is a kind of once in a lifetime situation. Well, I don't, I'm not sure if you remember this, but there were four editors just in HarperCollins. Yeah, yeah. Buy your book. I remember. Oh. <laughs> <And> I forget. <laughs> I remember every single editor I talked to. It was amazing <laughs> to, to, I mean, the, I couldn't believe how thoughtful the comments were after, you know, people had read it in 24 hours or something. It was, it was a privilege. And um, like I said, I, I think it might, you know, I understand that that you're so lucky if that happens once. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit more because you had touched on this, that while this was happening sort of simultaneously, and then it extended long afterwards, there was an exciting TV film auction at the same time. Anything fun you can share about that experience? I know so much of it is sort of like <laughs> until they officially announce, you're not allowed to talk about it, um, but they have announced. Yes. But obviously yeah. there are things happening behind the scenes. Yeah. No, that was a fascinating process to live through. Um, I was so lucky to talk, to get to talk to eight different teams that were interested in optioning this book. And it was all different iterations of producers, actors, um, studios, streamers, you know, different combinations of that. And um, I had no idea what to expect, obviously. And so when I went into my first meeting, I remember kind of like preparing myself that one of these teams would likely ask to change the race of one of these protagonists like I, I just kind of told myself don't be surprised if they That's say it would have to be an entirely different story <laughs> I know but doesn't Hollywood do that all the time like there's so many stories I mean that I hope not as much or, anymore right well well so that was the that, that I mean that was what was fascinating so I mean I even thought like you know they won't tell me like I have to make the Asian character white but maybe they would say you know we'd have more options if we could hire a Latinx actor or an African-American actor and so I was just kind of preparing myself for that and what was so interesting was was that everybody, Tuti, was committed to um, Asian American actors, preferably Chinese American, and then extend beyond that. Like they, they were like, we're going to work hard to find a Chinese American showrunner, a Chinese American director, preferably women. They had lists of people that they, some they had already reached out to, some had already expressed interest. And I was really floored by that. And I know, I know that it is great, a great deal of that is because of how successful Crazy Rich Asians did, you know, how well Crazy Rich Asians did. Yeah. Because so much of the talent that I was, you know, talking to came out of those films. And um, so, you know, on the one hand, I feel extremely lucky that we went on submission at the time we did. And on the other hand, I really hope that isn't a blip in the timeline and that, um, that this is something that Hollywood is actually committed to and not just, you know, lip service. 
I know that you as an author don't really have control about this, but if you could have your dream cast for Ava and Winnie, who would it be? I can't even answer that question. No, no. <laughs> because your dream reason. person has been cast? Because the dream, the we are in conversation <laughs> with several actors who are in my heart of hearts, dream, the dream cast. And I can't even jinx it by uttering their names. I get it. I, I get it. I totally get it. So you and I have spent, you know, a lot of time as we were working on, you know, the edits for counterfeit and the themes you want to explore and, and developing the, these two personalities of Ava and Winnie. And something that was really important to you, I know, in writing this book and also in how you would like it to be talked about was this idea of interrogating the myth of the model minority. I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about why you wanted to explore this idea through these two characters. And did you set out with this theme in mind or was it something that sort of developed as you were writing? I definitely set out with this theme in mind. Um, you know, I, we talked about how we I sold this book um, right around the 2020 election. I actually started writing this book in 2017, right after the 2016 presidential election. And I was really thinking about what does it mean to be an immigrant in this country? What does it mean to be a person of color? Um, is this a place where I can make a life? Um, Sorry if that sounds dramatic, but I grew up in Singapore. And so it was actually like a real question. Like, is this a place where I want to live the rest of my life? Um, and so I think that was kind of the backdrop that I went into writing this novel. And this seemed, and you know, these two Asian American characters seemed like the ideal way to explore um, the issues that I was thinking about already. Um, and then because of how long it takes to write a book, I did a lot of the revision during the pandemic. And um you know, we saw during the pandemic how quickly model minorities turned in, you know, in the Asian model minorities turned into um, this kind of contaminated group of people who were responsible for spreading the Chinese flu. Um, and so that only kind of heightened the urgency of this, this, you know, that experience was maybe the first time in my life in America that I actually thought twice about leaving my apartment in San Francisco and was worried about how I was presenting to the world. And, you know, if I wear a mask, will people be mad? If I don't wear a mask, you know, like I'd never had to kind of think about that before. Um, and so I think it just really sharpened the message that I wanted to get through in this novel. And I don't think you mentioned this earlier, but that original piece that you read, the original con artist, in part, I believe, inspired this idea because yes. you felt like she was the most unlikely of criminals, yes. at least, you know, from an outside stereotypical perception. Yes, she was an Asian American, uh, she was an immigrant, actually, an Asian immigrant who also taught preschool, which I was like, is there a more innocuous combination, you know, in terms of stereotypes? And so, yes, that definitely sparked something as well. Well, I love um, this, not, you know, it's hard to talk too much about counterfeit because there is a big twist that happens, especially in terms of how you perceive these two women, their relationship to each other. But one of the big themes that's sort of underlying the novel is this pursuit of the American dream and what it means to be an American. And I feel like Winnie in some ways, the, who is not, you know, she becomes an American. Um, mm -hmm but she's not born and raised in this country, but yet she seems to have the most love for America mm -hmm. of the two characters. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think, isn't that often the case? I don't know. When I think about, um, you know, my, 
my husband, for instance, is the child of immigrants and his parents are, you know, they're kind of, they, they moved to this country in, in graduate school and they just kind of embraced the American tradition traditions. Like, you know, they love to camp, they have a 4th of July barbecue every year, like that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the fact that it's by choice is probably a big part of it. The fact that they never take anything for granted. Um, I think that's often the case that immigrants love um, their new homelands the most and are the most grateful because they could see um, the things that everybody else takes for granted. Yeah, yeah. Well, Winnie is such an incredible character. I'm so excited for people to meet both of these women. Um, you know, I think just to turn away from the novel a little bit, I'd love to hear from you. You know, obviously, you're a longtime reader, lover of books. Do you have a, you know, or did you have when you were growing up a relationship to a specific library or have a like vivid memory from when you were a kid from a library? Yes, for sure. Um, I, yes, I've always loved, my earliest memories involve books and I always remember loving to read. And um, my elementary school had a lovely library that we were allowed to take books out of, obviously. And um, one thing about growing up in Singapore is that the school system is extremely test oriented. So from the first grade, students take uh, tests, finals, midterms, all of that. And I remember that in my classroom, we were allowed to borrow books from the library. And the rule was if you finished your test early, you could then spend the time reading quietly, which is my favorite thing to do. And so I would race through my tests and um, you know do them as quickly as possible, just so that I could have this time to read my library books and my parents couldn't figure out why my grades were so bad because I would make all these careless mistakes and sometimes often I would forget to turn the last page over and leave the entire page of questions blank and one day my mom sat me down and said you know walk me through the process of doing your test and I said oh you know I do the test and then I read my library book and she realized what was happening and I remember her saying I'm really sorry, but you cannot bring a book to class when you have a test. And she was like, my mom is a voracious reader and she gave me my love of reading. And she, I, I know she felt so bad having to, to <laughs> prevent me from bringing my books to class. But unfortunately, my grades did improve after that. Yeah, that's so funny. When I was a kid, um, my parents used to threaten to take my books away as punishment. It wasn't like, go to your room. It was like, go to your room and we're taking your books away. Yeah, yeah. That's how you know that you're a true, true lover. That was the real, you know, all that mattered. <laughs> all right. So you say that you are an armchair handbag expert. <laughs> and I mean, from reading the book, it seems like you are, but probably because I know very little about handbags. Um, I'm slowly learning. I, I learned, I picked up some stuff from counterfeit. Um, but do you own any fake luxury handbags? If so, where did you buy them? <laughs> so I don't. I have in the past. And I will say that now that I've done all this research, I probably wouldn't buy one again. But um, years ago in the late 90s, my parents were living in Hong Kong um, for my father's work. And I remember one day my mom and I took the train across the border to Shenzhen and went to this mall. This was in 1998 or 99, went to this mall that sold only fake handbags. And I bought this little Louis Vuitton patent leather dove gray pochette that was so cute and impractical. And it fell apart in maybe three months, <laughs> but, um, 
that was probably, that's, I think that's my only experience with a counterfeit handbag. Yeah, I think the first time we talked, I told you that I also, it was the early aughts yeah. when those Louis bags were, yes. especially the fake ones. See, you know a lot about handbags. Yeah. Um, but I bought one, it was like off the back of a truck outside of a nightclub. <laughs> and it was that like round bag. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With the little like, handles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It was pretty good quality. I think I spent like a hundred bucks on it. Oh, that's um, yeah. Back then that was a high quality. So that was yeah. like a, a, a pricey one, but not like what they're dealing with in counterfeit, which are called super fakes. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk about what that is a little yeah. bit? Yeah. I mean, I think the technology has improved so much over the last couple of decades. And I think because so many brands have moved their manufacturing to China, there was just all this in- information available. And so the quality of fakes has really risen rapidly in the last uh, decade, perhaps. Um, and so now we have the, the highest quality of fake handbags are sometimes colloquially known as super fakes, and they're supposed to be 98% indistinguishable, at least 98% indistinguishable from the real thing. And having seen some of these up close, I will say that unless you are a true expert and know exactly what to look for, they're pretty, pretty difficult to spot. I think part of the fun about the scheme in the book is that they're fooling experts. And I think that a lot of, um, I mean, I think that that is true, you know, that even the, the brands are actually very secretive about releasing what they look for in order to decipher whether a handbag is fake because they don't want that information out in the world. Okay, so now moving on to real handbags. If price were no object, is there like what designer or luxury handbag would you own if you could? Okay, I was reluctant. I'm reluctant would to it, answer would this. Would it question. be a Merlot colored Birkin, <laughs> like in the novel? The color of blood. The color um, of blood. <laughs> um, like many handbag lovers, I have always dreamed of owning a Birkin, and I did managed to purchase one after I sold my second book, not a Himalayan crocodile Birkin, a kind of starter Birkin. Um, and, but the process of buying it, I, um, I purchased it when I was in Paris and it involved lining up for days and, um, hours of, you know, hours of just standing in line in the cold. And I think that I, um, it so destroyed my sense of self and how I want to think about myself and how, you know, and everything about um, what I value in this world that it kind of destroyed my, my quest for more handbags. Like, I actually feel like if you ask me today, I, I, I may never need to buy another handbag. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it Do just you kind of felt sh- like once you possessed the thing and realized this didn't make me happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, the handbag itself makes me very happy. But <laughs> the process of buying it was so demoralizing that I okay. would never go through it again. Like, you're like, why am I doing this? And so I think that that is in some ways that was a turning point. Well, is there anything else that you want to speak to about counterfeit? I mean, I'm sure I know you're just so excited to one, start seeing your book in libraries and in bookstores. Yeah. I mean, some of the best events that I've done over the past couple of, uh, you know, over my writing career have been in libraries and I've done, um, you know, uh, wonderful panels and dinners. And it, I just, um, love meeting librarians and the kind of people that come to events at libraries. And so I'm hoping that I'll be able to do more uh, with this book. And I think, and we're all so excited, well, at least I am, to see Counterfeit Adapted. 
Yeah. I feel like everyone <laughs> who reads it is just like, oh my God, this is a movie. This is a TV show. Like it's just, you can, do, you can sort of see it unfolding as you're reading the book. I, that would be a dream. So I, I hope so too. Well, everyone look out for Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen. It's available June 7th. And I mean, don't take my word for it because I am partial, but it's, it's really a wonderful total blast to read. And it also just makes you think. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.